Today on Never Was a Gamer, Link's Awakening, Silent Hill, Shadow of the Colossus. <sighs> Finally, I get to feel something. Welcome to Never Was a Gamer, the show where a late-blooming gamer makes up for lost time playing everyone else's formative games. I'm Michelle, and with me as always is the man who's at the center of so many of my emotions, <laughs> Dimitri. Hi, thanks so much for joining us on our second Snap Judgment episode. This is where we take a break from our major arcs to play a variety of not-so-formative games, <laughs> usually yeah. around a theme, and I think we've got a really fun theme for today. No intent to finish any of these games, just long enough for Michelle to get a taste of what these games are about and, of course, to render a verdict <laughs> on whether she thinks it was worth her time to play these games. Absolutely. Um, but before we get too far into today's Snap Judgment episode, uh, I just want to take a minute to wrap up and reflect on the arc we just concluded, which was about experimental mechanics in mainstream games. Yeah, I really enjoyed replaying all of these games, and I especially enjoyed watching you play them for the first time and was pleasantly surprised by how they resonated with you. Um, I guess one of my biggest fears going in was that, you know, what would have felt new and experimental for me when I played these would no longer feel that way for you because you've played a lot of, you know, indie games or games that sure. do interesting things with mechanics. But th these games still seem to appeal to you and, and hit in the same way that they did. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think it's telling that as much as I have played a fair number of slightly more like experimental or independent games uh, that are sort of contemporary, I still don't know that I have played a game before like any of these three games that we picked for this process. Um, I mean, certainly I see some lineage, and we've talked a little bit about that in the episodes of, you know, strains that I see picked up in contemporary things I've played. You know, things like uh, Donut County or even some stuff that turns up in, you know, Mario Party games. Um, but I think the reason why this all really worked for me and felt really fresh is that all of these are games that um, let go of scope in order to pursue a very strong sense of identity of what they are. And I think that's just something that inherently will almost always hook me. Like, I think I'm, as a player, I think I'm willing to go on a lot of different journeys and to a lot of different places if I feel like a game has a strong sense of what it is and what it wants to show me. You know what I mean? And all these games absolutely have that. Yeah, and I think this is something I miss, especially from, you know, more mainstream publishers. Yeah. That seems to be missed today. Because, And again, I, I'm happy that history went the way it has and that we have access to all of these indie games. But it's almost like the burden of experimentation has mm -hmm. just been left on the indie games. And by and large, you know, mainstream publishers do these games with incredibly large scopes where they try to do everything, where right. they have, you know, 200 ideas that they right. want to play with. Uh, none of which are really well defined or explored. Mm -hmm. And for that kind of stuff, you do have to go to the indie space. But some of these kind of in-between games that are you know, lower budget, but still have more budget than a lot of indie games. Right. And, and you know, that, that might even bring in traditional franchises and, and play around with those and the limits of what you can do in those franchises. I mean, that's even something that I think in terms of Nintendo, who as as a major developer and publisher tended to be a little bit more experimental. Mm -hmm. One of the things that I think was lost with 
the emergence of the switch is the like the handheld as the space of experimentation right because now the switch kind of has the burden of being both simultaneously and the games are always going to be these you know like now 90 dollar games yeah and so i think the i think like the capacity to experiment or take those risks that maybe you know a a developer would have taken on on a handheld game Mm mm-hmm or, you know, on a game that's slightly lower budget with a weird bongo peripheral. <laughs> right. I was going to say, actually, you know, I something like uh, Donkey Kong Jungle Beat, I don't know that we get that in the indie-scape of today. Like, how many, like, indie operations are going to make a game right. that also requires you to buy an attached peripheral? I that, mean, we have some examples, no, but, of course. But, but, but I think that's a great point, right? When it comes to these games that require you to invest more than you're used to. Yeah. Smaller developers can't take that risk. Right. right? You, they, yeah. You need that big install base to even have potential consumers for your for your product. Yeah, right. You need you need a, a company that's pretty comfortable with its own cash flow to yeah. put out a bongo. <laughs> Tactfully put. <laughs> I think that's the case. Yeah. And I mean, I think the other thing with these three games particularly is that all three of them commit so hard to the bit. I think with all three of these games, it would have been really easy to make something gimmicky, something that wears out its welcome, something that has a couple fun ideas, but is sort of like a B plus kind of game. Um, I can easily imagine an alternate version of all three of these games that just isn't what they gave us. But instead, you also get the feeling of like really thoughtful people working on this game who yeah, it's weird and experimental, but they also wanted it to be good. They wanted it to have variation and to have surprises the whole way mm-hmm. through and to impress you and to keep you engaged. Like, I think that's that's another thing in here is that all of these games were more than I thought they would be when I cracked them open. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I mean, even aside from the mechanics, just the general tone of these games, the sense of humor that all of these games had, mm-hmm. that was something I think that was unintended when we selected these three. But they're all very playful games in a lot of ways and all kind of funny and light, not in a pejorative way, but yeah. just kind of lighthearted. And in contrast to so many of the major games that come out today that are self-serious and overwrought, it was it was totally refreshing as well. And again, you get you can get some of those more playful games, but again, those typically aren't coming from major publishers anymore. Yeah. And there's sort of um and of course there are always exceptions. Uh, yeah, sure. Um there's there's even space for some perspective and I'm trying not to like take this more seriously than it deserves but like I don't know if Nintendo now would release a first party game where one of your characters is like fleeing from the cops and their pets are chucking stuff in the police car's way you know what I mean like I think there's like there's there's a shape of irreverence in some of these as well that I think um I, I would be more surprised to see today and that was like really pleasant for me to encounter in the wild in these older games. Yeah, where's Wario when you need him? Where's Wario? You know what? Wario, the hero we need, not his, the uh, hero we deserve. His weird <laughs> hyper-capitalist anarchist spirit somehow. Like, he's kind of the 2021 vibe, right? Like, <laughs> I, I'm not even being cute about this. There's something really about that game that like, the ugliness of it and the chaos and the like the crunch of it, but the the individual voices that weirdly still sing in it, but is still with this guy who is you're you figure out at the end has made off with all of the cash. You know, like I don't know. There's there's something like very relevant today about Do you see Wario yourself Wear. reflected in Wario? 
I I mean, I'm not a capitalist making off with anybody's money, um, but sure, I, aren't we all? Me. Aren't we all a little bit Wario deep down? Um, I de- I actually identify much more with the prince in the sense of, in my own little delusional world, I'm a do gooder, <laughs> but gradually realizing my actions have catastrophic <laughs> outcomes for oh, other no. people. Welcome to the nonprofit sector. <laughs> Also, actually, the king of all cosmos is like the ultimate stereotypical boomer. Oh, he's no. like, he's like, got, got this great position, so much privilege, and it's just like, son, why don't you take a trip to Ibiza? Meanwhile, son is like grinding it out, <laughs> trying to fix their parents' mistakes on the world. That's, uh, that game's also pretty relevant. Play Katamari. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, I think that's a good way to kind of tie a little bow around the these more experimental games. And spoiler alert, we do have an arc on indie games proper yeah. coming up in the not too distant future. So I think we'll revisit a lot of these games and and think back on their influence and use them as a lens through which to understand some of the more recent indie games. But for now, let's turn over to our snap judgments. So for today... We wanted to look at games that evoked specific emotions. Yes, uh, specific emotions for the player. And so, you know, a lot of the time when we're putting these together, we sort of lead with an idea of what games we want to play specifically. We we did the selection process a little differently this time. Yeah, it was it was a process. So Michelle provided me with the list of emotions. <laughs> yeah. And I went through the list. And selected four of them Mm -hmm. and then tried to find a corresponding game that would provoke that emotion from Michelle. Yeah. And you very kindly did not pick all four from the darkest emotions (laughs) on the list, which I deeply appreciate. I picked three. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, And a constraint I put on myself was that I only wanted to choose console games released before 2000. Right. So we're still in the same basic sort of time zone that a lot of our a lot of our episodes have been about. Yeah, and and really kind of still riffing off our last arc with these games that were slightly more mainstream, you know, meant for a mass audience, but mm-hmm. that could still provoke very specific emotions. And from a time when we didn't necessarily associate games with having kind of that emotional component. I mean, right. even now, I think, you, you know, kind of lazily, we often just refer to games as fun. Sure. Just a variety of games are just under the rubric fun. Right. Which right. is not a really descriptive <laughs> word in any sense, you know. And so I think part of this uh, for us, too, is about becoming even more descriptive with how we think about how games work on us and how certain mechanics or, or aesthetics work on us. Yeah. And not just fun. Also, how what are the different shades of stress or challenge or any of those sorts of mm-hmm. um, less you know, unambiguously positive emotions? Like, how exactly do we do we distinguish between shades of those in in the play experience? Yeah. So without any further ado, let's get to our first emotion. The first emotion Michelle gave me was overwhelm. Yeah. Um, I thought. Were that... you overwhelmed by the process of picking an appropriate game for this one? No. Well, no, because I thought <laughs> this was going to be so easy. Of all of them, <laughs> this one, I thought this is the easiest one. I saw the emotion. My mind immediately went to like bullet hell, shoot 'em up style games, mm-hmm. right? Games where you're just bombarded by projectiles and you right. need to, you know, frantically shoot and dodge to avoid being hit. And so I thought this one slam dunk. And the game that I chose was from 1990, Silver Surfer for the <laughs> NES. 
Um, and I picked this game because it's infamous for being incredibly difficult. I played it about 10 years ago, and I remember not being able to finish a single level. I think I was lucky if I cleared two screens. So my memory of this was was incredibly difficult, and my memory of this was just being bombarded by shit. I would say your memory of this was accurate. And so I think, so I thought to myself, you know, if there's any game that would overwhelm the player, <laughs> it's got to be The Silver Surfer. Uh, it also has a sweet soundtrack. Yeah, you know, what's interesting about this is you were almost so right about it that you ended up being wrong. <laughs> I, I, I was, yeah. Do you want to set up what this game is? <laughs> sure. I kind of described it, but... Sure. Um, so in this game, you are the silver surfer, uh, and you're going through auto-scrolling levels on your little surfboard, shooting guys Okay, in like a bullet hell situation. You're underselling. It is not a little surfboard. I'm going to get to this later. It is a you massive little surfboard. surfboard. It's a large surfboard. Okay. The important thing to know here is that there's literally no surface in this game that you can touch at all. So floors, ceilings, anything, like nothing. You cannot touch a firm surface in this game. And everything is instant death. You have one health point. Everything is a one-hit kill. Yeah, that was important for me when I was picking this game, too. I wanted a game where you died with one hit. Instantly. So you can feel the, you know, be, being overwhelmed by... The stakes, yeah. Yeah, you can feel the stakes and just feel that overwhelming feeling when you just see all of this stuff coming at you. Yeah. So here's why it didn't work yeah, it on It didn't me. work. I didn't work for I don't it didn't work for either of us. I went back to play it, and it, it, it it did it was not the experience that I had remembered. You barely did better than me at this game. Oh, I I told well, you know, I did as well as I expected to. <laughs> but I, but overwhelmed wasn't the feeling that I felt. Right. So this is where we learned that you can't feel overwhelmed if you are so bad at a game that you aren't even really playing it. Like I just <laughs> yeah. I kept dying to literally the first thing that appears on screen. Like so many of these. So this game also has like a Mega Man style. Choose which level you want to go to first. You can do them in any order. Um, and I tried a bunch of them. You I, tried all of them. Yeah, I tried all of them. I've seen them all. Um, I probably on the first level that I tried blew through 30 lives and achieved a total of about 90 seconds of actual gameplay because it just like I wasn't even getting to where the level actually kicks off. Like it just I couldn't even. I didn't have enough of a grasp of anything to even feel overwhelmed. Like overwhelmed, you have to feel like in some other context you're in control. And this just felt like nothing. Like, <laughs> Yeah, I think I think I was playing. I think I made it to a checkpoint once. I didn't even know this game had mid-level checkpoints because you never <laughs> make to them. I don't know if every level does. This one did. Sure. Um, but yeah, I think this is what I learned too, right? That being overwhelmed seems to imply the possibility of a success of whelm of yeah. being able to you know <laughs> yeah being able to be in a state of not being overwhelmed right so like being overwhelmed should trigger some sort of like survival response that pushes you to want right. to manage the situation that rush yeah instead this was something more like i think immediate resignation from yes absolutely okay here's what you should be picturing dear listener at one point my controller disconnected and i did better <laughs> <laughs> like i think that was like one of my better <laughs> That's not a lie. <laughs> oh. Yeah, this game is stupid. Okay, this yeah. is the only way I can explain this game. I know in my soul that there is an angry video game nerd video about this game, and I can hear the narration in my head, even though I am not an angry video game nerd fan, and I have not really like dug deep in it. I there, still, I can conjure it. There I've is got an it. angry video game nerd. I know there is. <laughs> I know there is. I haven't seen it. I like. I don't even need you to confirm. I know there is. 
It's exactly the kind of game that like that, like, oh, let me tell you every freaking thing that happens. Everything that happens is bad. Like, it's a magnet for that kind of narration. So sadly, you went in knowing nothing about the Silver Surfer. You came out knowing nothing about the Silver Surfer or about this game. That's how I would like really. to keep it. That this is okay. I just slight sidebar. This has to be the most dog shit stupid concept for a guy. <laughs> for a guy that I have ever seen. He's silver and he's got a surfboard. Like what? Well, he he wasn't always silver. Okay, I don't don't he tell was me made about silver. don't tell me about the because silver surfer. His name I is, don't want. I'm very happy with the absolute lack of this silver guy surfer named knowledge. Norrin that Rad, that's his name. Oh my God. And Galactus is going to eat his planet, but he said, "No, don't eat my planet. Instead, I'll become your herald and surf the stars to find other planets for you to eat." Okay, wait, wait. So this guy is surfing the stars on his little surfboard, but he can't touch the freaking floor <laughs> in this. One hit, one like brush with concrete, and he's an instant KO. Yeah, he's a sensitive soul. Oh my god! So yeah, so Silver Surfer didn't work. So I frantically went and <laughs> and just put on Contra Three, which was a much better choice. Yeah, this was so fun. This was so, like same kind of premise. This is a running gun. Mm-hmm. So you're you're moving from left to right in this case, and and it's not an auto scroller, but same kind of. Or at least I think what I was hoping that Silver Surfer would provide, just a lot of uh, high density of enemies, high density of projectiles, you and your partner, we played co-op, yeah. are kind of frantically running across the stage, you know, turning around, shooting something, turning back around, shooting something else, shooting in all directions, oh, down, yeah. avoiding enemies in all directions. This was what I was hoping. I think this provided the right yeah. feeling. This was positive overwhelm. This game has dynamics. It has, you know... The, the crunch points that are really hard. It has waves and like um, this felt like it had intentional articulated formations of sets of guys as opposed to just being throwing shit at you all the time forever with no with no end. Um, this felt like it had levels that were designed as opposed to just ones that happened. The other thing about this game is that it's it's a difficult game. It's, it's oh, a hard sure, game. Yeah. It's not Silver Surfer difficult, but it's hard. But there are a lot of elements on the screen that can't actually hurt you. So there's like a lot going on for sure and a lot that you do have to shoot at and dodge. But there's the illusion that even more is going on. Right. There's a ton of background explosions. There's just a ton of projectiles. Yeah. Um, your own guns often shoot many projectiles just to kind of help create that you know sense of density on the screen. But that's not actually hurting you. So you can feel overwhelmed, but you're not going to die if you touch the floor. I think there's also... Unless lava. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Floor is lava. Um, I think another thing that makes a big difference with Contra 3 is you get... There's there's also dynamics in how powerful you feel versus the world around mm-hmm. you. So even though there is a really continual challenging flow of things to deal with and navigate, you also are going through periods where like, okay, you got this power up for your gun. And so all of a sudden your gun is like doing way more impact than it than it was before. And so I think it provides you a bit of a sense of you escalating as a threat as well. Never to the point where you're like, oh, this is easy now. I'm mowing down everything. Like I would say I was pretty continually like it's frantic. Like you definitely still get that overwhelmed feeling, but I never felt defeatist about this. Like, I never was like, oh, I just don't want to play this. Like, this is just, there's no yeah. point. And there's a very slippery slope between the two. Mm-hmm. And maybe for more competent Silver Surfer players, that would have, Silver Surfer would have produced the right emotion. But sure. for us, we were not good enough. No. Nope. Did not. No, nope. we're too uh, bad. But 
we have to go back to Silver Surfer before moving on because another thing we're going to do in all of these in all of our Snap Judgment episodes is that we have to find one special thing with every game, even Silver Surfer, even within those two screens that we could see of the game. What is one good idea that this game had? So I liked the switch up between it being a side scroller and a top down sort of vertical scrolling game. So in some of the Silver Surfer levels, you sort of see him from the side and he's moving around and up and like the screen is moving sideways through a space. And he's moving left to right in a a left to right auto scroller. Yeah. And in other ones, you're looking at him from the top down and the screen is scrolling like from north to south. So it's still an auto scroller. You're dodging pathways and guys and shooting. Like it's the same basic idea, but it flips perspective and I don't know, I actually really liked it. And I the the if I can say that I enjoyed anything about the Silver Surfer, the Fire Lords level, I think, has a terrific aesthetic. It looks like the surface of the moon in like black and white craters, but it's got this like tomato soup colored like river of lava, I think, that is like the path you have to stay on. But it just like it's a very striking combination and it somehow feels like quite modern and quite stylish. Like I just, I genuinely was like, oh, like this is, you know, okay. I mean, I died so quickly that I never saw anything more than like the first bend of the tomato soup river, but you know, we still got that. Well, okay. So mine's kind of related to this first bend of the tomato soup river. And it's, it's, it's a bit of a backhanded special thing, (laughs) but on those top down levels, because I also really, I, I really like too how how it did have some top down and some kind of, uh, side-scrolly levels but in the top-down levels you really get to feel how big and bulky and cumbersome that surfboard is oh my god because you have to maneuver this surfboard through these these lava rivers without touching the edge it's it's like playing operation or something again if you touch any surface you die but i just love that it you're like, oh, yeah, this guy, this superhero is like stuck on this big surfboard. Like, that's kind of clunky. And I like that. It, I felt that it communicated that, that this actually would be pretty challenging even for this superhero. And you only get that in the top down levels because side to side, you're you're just seeing him from the side. So the surfboard like protrudes a little bit. But then when you have to deal with kind of the width of the surfboard yeah. in the top down levels and you got to maneuver through narrow passageways, it's the worst. But that's also. And you don't feel like. That doesn't just make you reflect on what a dog shit, stupid superhero this is. Well, it makes me reflect on his plight. Oh, no. Not his plight. Yeah. No. Um, the other thing, and and I don't want, I can't give this game credit because it is the Mega Man thing, but it's one thing that I, I think this game taught me even more than Mega Man. Uh, because as you mentioned, like Mega Man, it opens and you get a choice of, you know, the five levels mm-hmm. to choose from. This is a great idea for very difficult games. Because at least as a player, you feel like you're getting some value. Even yeah. If you can't beat a single level, like you still get to see all of the aesthetics. Yeah, true. <laughs> which is nice. Uh, same, same in Mega Man, right? Like you get a taste and it also, it gives you something. If you get frustrated with one, it gives you something else to work yeah. on. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I, I mean, I think this is something that's even carried forth into difficult games like a Dark Souls, where usually as a player, you have more than one path that you could potentially go and work on. So if you get frustrated or you get stuck at a boss... There's something else that you can do somewhere else, you know, to feel like you're progressing. Sadly, in this case, I'm so bad at this game that even that it's like I can go through all five of them in, you know, literally a minute and a half, try all of them and have died. Oh, yeah. 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 But that's with load times. (laughs) Yeah. Okay. So so what's your verdict? Want to play more? 
Glad you played it or wish you never played it. Wish I never played it. There's no point. There's no point. What what did I play? I didn't even play a game. I held a controller and died. A lot of times. There's like there's nothing happened here. Yeah, not overwhelmed, just despondent. Just like why? <laughs> just why? By the way, I know it wasn't our official thing, but since we also talked about Contra, would play more. Oh, awesome. Co-op, though. Yes. Never by myself. Never, no interest by myself. That makes me really happy. We had a fun time. Let's go play more Contra. Okay. (laughs) Bye, everyone. we're back with our second emotion and remember michelle gave me this list she only has herself to blame there were a lot of unselected emotions on the list i'm just gonna say but one that i did choose was <laughs> disgust yeah and to be fair i did know you would pick this if i put it on there were a couple words that i was like no we're leaving that off it's too tempting and so for this one i went with maybe some low-hanging fruit Boogerman, a pick and flick adventure a platformer released for the Genesis in 1994 and for the Super Nintendo in 1995. So the title might speak for itself. People might already have kind of a mental picture of what this game looks like, even if they haven't seen it before, but they may as well set up what this is. So Boogerman is this gross dude in like a Captain Underpants style crude superhero outfit who uh, is in this action platformer that's very like sort of biological and has a lot of like gross body stuff in it like there's a lot of these like sores on the on the ground that are pimples that you jump on to pop and his general like arsenal of weaponry is like flicking boogers burping and farting on bad guys he like warps by flushing himself down toilets or like getting snorted into a nose it's just it's just that from top to bottom. Just every inch of it is that. It sounds like I got two games that made you feel resigned. That's I'm good at that one. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that was not a word. Yeah, I, I mean, I picked this for obvious and maybe some not so obvious reasons. Um, but yeah, the obvious reason is that it is a disgusting game. Yeah, that's its whole thing. It's it. Yeah, that's what it's going for. The audio is a lot of. I mean, there's there's music in the background, but anytime. Boogerman, you know, jumps on an enemy or defeats an enemy. You get a fart sound. Yeah, it's a burp squelching. Sound. Like it's all, yeah, yeah. The it's it's actually kind of like the animation is really good, and like it looks good. It's just talent was put to the ends of Boogerman. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. like instead of in the service of something else. So like, like his animations are great. I think, especially for the era. Yeah, I guess that's true. Actually, but the animation is him. But like, what are they of? It's, it's like him bent over, like getting a big fart ring. Cranking out. A, yeah, exactly. Yeah. So really, I mean, I knew this game existed. I was pretty sure you didn't know it existed, so I couldn't resist. Yeah, uh, I, I don't think I was aware of it before this. Uh, and I did want you to see this other side, though. I think you got uh, a hint of it when we talked about Earthworm Jim of this kind of 90s edginess. Mm-hmm. Uh, right. And this game was developed more or less concurrently with Earthworm Jim. It came out about a month apart. They came out about a month apart. The other reason I picked this game, and this might make you more disgusted than the game itself, <laughs> when I was a kid, I wanted to play this game real bad. 
Oh, I I can't remember what holiday was coming up, but my list of potential gifts that I would like included two games, Boogerman and Mario Kart. And thank God my mom picked (laughs) Mario Kart. She has a history of of correcting my potentially bad purchasing decisions. Just little nudges. <laughs> She's very supportive of your weird tastes, but like with a little nudge but now. But she and then. bought she bought us Mario Kart instead of Boogerman. And now that I've played it, definitely thankful. But I was always <laughs> very curious about this game. And so I want to use this also as a chance to to go and, and play it. Glad I didn't own it. I guess my my biggest response to this game is that this is an object lesson in how quickly disgust can turn into boredom. Mm. So I think like, you know, sort of like with our our Silver Surfer reflection about being overwhelmed and how you have to have a baseline that you're deviating from sort of to feel overwhelmed. Um, I think that disgust needs to be a deviation from the the general tone of a piece for it to stay effective. Yeah, I mean, we had... I, I even feel bad bringing this game into the conversation, but we had like a similar discussion about horror with Silent Hill. Yeah, right. Right, like when you have an emotion that's that kind of powerful and and demands almost like a visceral response mm-hmm. from the player, how can you sustain that over the length of a game? Right. This one just doesn't. This game just like it wore off. It wore out its welcome pretty much fast. instantly. It told me what it was, and then I was like, okay. And then everything after that is like, oh yeah, I guess yeah, you would, you know. It's it's that feeling. Um, yeah, it just immediately tells you every inch of it is going to be gross in like a specific like little kid way. And from that point on, it's hard for anything to have any real impact. Like I remember you know, seeing the the pimples that you pop on the ground. And I think you had to tell me what they were supposed to be. I just thought they were just like little things that pop and make a gross noise. And then it was like, yeah, okay, that makes sense. But like, you know, I don't have a big reaction. It's like this, this game could be in a museum of what it was like to be in grade two in 1995. That's oh, yeah. how I feel about That's this. That's kind of what it is. Yeah. 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 Honestly, I think I am more disgusted with this lazy game design than the content itself of Boogerman. Yeah, so this is the thing that really stood out to me and one of the reasons I'm glad I did not get it as a child, even though I love platformers. But one thing that I didn't realize is this is a this is like a Euro platformer. Like there's a European approach to platform design that just does not jibe with me at all. And this is kind of emblematic of it. And again, this one of those distinctions is a little bit oversimplistic, but by and large, like the Euro approach to platformers had was more about these huge sprawling maze-like levels mm. where, you know, like it feels like if you kind of zoomed out, the level would be like a series of tunnels dug out by like moles going in whatever direction, yeah. right? Where it's really about navigating and I don't even want to say exploration. I want to say like just figuring out how to get through the level. Just persisting kind of. Yeah. Like a lot of these levels are just structured like, um, like, you know, if you go like to a theme park, like the switchback lines where you like run to the yeah. left and then you jump up and then you go all the way to the right and then you jump up and you go all the way to the left. Yeah. The, the, the first like five levels are basically doing that on tree branches. Just the yeah. entire thing. Yeah. Which also is like a lazy classic game like this level design. Yeah. Right. Where you have like different like verticalities that you yeah. can that you need to go to, like just figure out where you need to go as part of the problem, which gets in the way of the platforming. Mm-hmm. And then another 
key thing that I associate with this type of platformer is the deadly combination of floaty controls, but also pixel perfect platforming. <laughs> like it demands so much precision that the controls don't allow. Yeah. And like it's a style of platformer that doesn't really let you get into a flow, which is when I when I play platformers like the Japanese style platformers like a Mario, for example, like yeah. you want to get into that flow, build up the momentum and kind of go nonstop platforming. And these types of games just don't allow it because you're either doubling back or figuring out where to go or yeah. having to stop in this case to flick a booger at an enemy. <laughs> so fun. Yeah, it's, it's just not my style. There's some of that style that I actually like. I think Rayman is a good example of that, mm -hmm. of that style of level design, platforming level design. But by and large, like I don't love this anyway. And right. I don't think this is a great example of that style. Right. But I mean, one of the reviews I read, and I, I want to get into the reviews a bit later, because these reviews, reviews I've had of this were like glowing. Oh. And it's like, okay, so like, like, you can understand why stupid kid me would have found this game enticing. Absolutely. But some of the reviews compared it with the Genesis version of Aladdin. <laughs> Well, Which I kind of agree with because I I think I'm one of the minority of people, from what I can tell, who really prefers the Super Nintendo version of Aladdin. Okay. And it's because the Genesis version uses this style of level design that's just kind of maze-like and complicated. And mm -hmm. I don't, that's not what I like. Sure. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's just kind of back and forth, left and right. And but then also the farting. I don't like that either. Yeah, <laughs> sure. There's also like one of the things that kept throwing me off in this game that also, you know, gets in the way of some of that flow is... It really often doesn't articulate well what's foreground and what's background. Mm -hmm. Like there's so many things in the background of this game that look like you should be able to interact with them in some way, but you can't. They're just decor. One of the most uh, uh, one the most prominent ones that I'm thinking of is there are some backgrounds where there's like a I'm gonna guess that it's supposed to be like a drip of pus or something dripping out of a mm -hmm. sore in the way. You know, this is listener. This is the kind of thing that everything is in this game. But so it's this little like tear pendant thing. And it rem visually, it reminds me of things from those old games like Aladdin and stuff that you would like grab to swing on. Mm -hmm. Like to me, it 100% read like something you would be able to grab and be suspended from and swing, which there are swing mechanics and the, the, there, there is, there are objects that you grab like that. But these things are all over some of these levels and they're, they're purely background. And conversely, there's, there are a ton of things that are foreground that disappear that aren't visually marked at all and not in a way where like oh you really have to be paying attention this is like a secret i mean like just trampolines that are the exact same color as the rest of the floor that like it just it's it makes so many weird design decisions about communicating with the player mm. while you're playing this i one thing i had to do was find out what our old friend he hasn't shown up in a while but our old friend dave halverson might have had to think. Because if you remember, he was the world's biggest Earthworm Jim fan. I, of course I remember. And diehard game fan gave Earthworm Jim, I think, 200s and a 99. Mm -hmm. And so I was thinking, okay, what did they think of Boogerman, which is very much in the same vein, came out around the same time. Yeah. First of all, they abbreviate Boogerman as BM, which oh. I don't think they realize. I don't think they know the. I don't think they get their the joke they're making, but it's very appropriate. It, yeah, it's in line. Yeah. Um, But three reviewers... Okay, here's something else I found out. I don't know if I mentioned this before, but what one thing I found out about diehard game fan was that so a game would often get would get reviewed by three reviewers, kind of like how EGM had multiple reviewers yeah. each giving a score. But in the case of diehard game fan, multiple of those reviewers were just Dave Halverson. <laughs> what? He just put on different names, like character names, and he'd write the little capsule reviews. So like 
in this case, like Skid is Dave Halverson, but like Mr. Goo is also Dave Halverson. That I I'm just concerned about ethics in game journalism, <laughs> like in the old days. Uh, but Diehard Game Fan gave. Also, Skid is a good name for someone to review Boogerman. Please continue. They gave Boogerman 95-90-92. You know what? That's in line with what we know about Dave Halverson's taste. In multiple of these reviews, which is, again, another reason that I'm pretty sure they're all Dave Halverson, mentions how Boogerman is one of the coolest characters they've ever seen. Oh, my God. And he says, the whole snot thing is just the coolest. Sequel, please. I'm going to read you one of these reviews because they're really was short. He, was Dave Halverson like three eight-year-olds in a trench coat, <laughs> <laughs> like going to work every day? <laughs> just like. Okay. I'm just going to read you one of these. If we must. They're very short. This is this gave it a 90. But the review is, and from one of Dave Halverson's many monikers, American designers have finally, all caps, <laughs> developed a character who is not cute, nice, or graceful. Those are all in all caps. In fact, Boogerman is a fat slob who picks boogers and rips farts, but he's a millionaire. I love this guy. The game is great, too. Good animation and good music. And That's then, the most just like some guy talking review of a game I've ever. Uh, there's like, it's good. I like the guy. He's the millionaire. And then it's the, all right. In the pre- 90. <laughs> in the preview <laughs> in that same issue, preview written by somebody who didn't review it, whose name is E Storm, who is also Dave Halverson. Oh, my God. This is how he sums up the game. Basically, my feeling is that everyone will find something they really like about Boogerman, and I have no flaws to report. <laughs> Imagine Perfect being game. this guy. No, fl- no notes. I got no notes. <laughs> Your job is to review games. You got nothing? From Boogerman, you got nothing? To be fair, he seems very not committed to the... Uh, advancing the art form of (laughs) of games oh it also includes a line not only does he fart he grunts them out it's again the museum of being in grade two in 1995 10 out of 10 perfect game from the halverson foundation no notes thank god dave halverson is not like a doctor (laughs) (laughs) how easy was it to get game reporting jobs in this era or like reviewing jobs i think if you're like a white dude with a mullet like you'll show easy. up yeah <laughs> extra points for mustache great he's like i really identify with this man finally a superhero for us normal guys oh okay playing boogerman was worth it just <laughs> <laughs> you haven't been very high on boogerman it didn't really work to make you consistently disgusted, but you still need to have one special thing about yep. the game. What is it? Okay. The one good idea that Boogerman has, uh, which I guess makes Dave Halverson right, I did find something to like. At So at the end, there are these collectibles that are plungers. Um, that's sort of your- Throughout your, the level. Throughout the levels, yeah. And at the end of the level, when it tallies up how many plungers you found, it arranges them physically into a ladder and- the idea is if the ladder is tall enough, Boogerman can climb up it and get to a ledge that takes you to a bonus level. And I just like how literal that is about, you know, you're collecting these plungers. You normally, when we have these collectibles that stand in in some way for like points or whatever, they're really abstracted. It's like you get stars or you get, you know, strawberries and Celeste. Like, um, and so I like that it's like, yeah, you get these plungers that you can make this physical thing with all these sticks to get to the bonus 
stage. It just that has a, a concreteness that I appreciate and makes it feel substantial. Uh, I still didn't want to collect any of them. I didn't go out of my way to collect any of them because I hated being in all of these spaces. But, you know, that's that's a good translation of of thing you want me to get to what it's for. Hmm. OK, uh, I got one, too, which is the element of resource management with your attacks. Okay. So you have a finite number of boogers mm-hmm. and you have a finite amount of breath. Yep. And so you you have to kind of manage those if you want to be able to do your attacks. And I especially like it when you find a chili pepper that gives you what I think is actually the... You laughed at this too. <laughs> he gets this rocket fart that lets him fly around. I just find rocket propulsion funny inherently. But at this moment, when you're actually using this, you have so much freedom and it's actually so useful, hmm. but it's so finite. So just ha- like getting the chili pepper and then figuring out when you're going to use it, when you're going to actually use your rocket propulsion fart yep. to reach places that you couldn't otherwise, or in some cases to skip a big portion of the level. <laughs> to get through this faster, <laughs> to get out of here. I find that I found that pretty good. And then there's also... I guess I found a lot to like about this. Another idea that I like that wow. ties into this wow. is that there's one boss called Deodorant. Okay. And one thing that he does is that apart from also jumping around the screen and trying to hit you, he throws like breath mints Okay. Uh, and nasal spray. And if you accidentally run into some of those, you lose your booger or breath power. Oh, so again, it it's like leaning into the concept of what we're supposed to be doing here, where it's like, yeah, this this like... Cleaned out your nasal cavities. Now you have less ammo. Yeah, like it ties in thematically, yeah. which I like, but it, it also plays with the resource management and it, it's kind of an interesting boss idea. Okay, yeah. Yeah, so sure. so what's your what's your verdict? Wish I never played it. <laughs> Why? I got nothing out of this. Like it's, you know, you, you did the theme, I guess, but mostly I was just bored, honestly. I just think this is like kind of a lazily put together game apart from, you know, these couple of highlight things. And... I I just almost immediately was like, oh, this is just at every level. You're just going to do this like really little kids idea of what's like edgy. And like once you just are like, oh, this is what it is. It's hard to feel anything about anything from that point. He thinks he's a hero, but he's snot. One of the game's taglines. Great. Okay, let's take a break and we'll come back and see if I did any better with these other games. <laughs> back and now we can talk about the one more positive emotion thank you for throwing me me this bone and uh yeah you gave me peaceful yeah so this one took me a bit longer to to figure out especially with the nothing uh after 2000 limitation that i put on myself but but i was looking for a game that met four criteria okay one it had to be somewhat familiar to you sure uh two it had to include no combat Mm-hmm. Three, it had to have somewhat of a slower pace. Sure. And then four, and maybe the most important, is that it had to have a very clear gameplay loop. Okay. 
Because I think to get into a peaceful meditative state, you want to kind of be doing the same thing over and over again. Sure. Um, especially if it's something at a slower pace. So I didn't want to give you a puzzle game. Sure. Because right. those can be peaceful, but they can also be really stressful. Right. So after some back and forth and a little bit of cheating, you kind <laughs> of hit me off and said that you were thinking about going and playing more Stardew Valley. I decided to give you Harvest Moon for the Super Nintendo from 1997. Yeah. So if you don't know what this game is, it is a uh, sort of farming simulator with some light RPG stuff. Like there's relationship building with people in a town. You are this character who has um, left their you know, hustle and bustle of modern life to take over a family farm. And you have to build it up from nothing, build relationships with the people in this town that your farm is attached to, cultivate your crops, you know, get animals, um, sort of build this this progression of how your farm operates. And that's basically it. You have a day-night cycle that that loops. And so there's sort of a rhythm to each of each of your days. And um, townspeople have their own schedules and cycles that are also tied into that pattern. You have seasons. And so it it does uh, fit this sort of meditative your you have a, a an arc to every to every little day. Yeah, and kind of thinking back on the arc we just finished about experimental mechanics, I think one thing I want to highlight, because it might not be clear playing it you know, in 2021, is at the time just how weird and unique this game was. Um, like the idea of a farming RPG or like a farming simulator that had JRPG elements was something that people had trouble wrapping their heads around. And like a lot of reviews and previews spent a lot of time just trying to explain to the player what this is. <laughs> and a lot of it, a lot of it almost explicitly like, look, I'm going to describe what you do. It's going to sound really boring. You just have to take our word for it that it's actually not. Yeah. Um, and just trying to get that buy-in both from the reviewers and then on the reviewers and from the readers. And and I remember as a kid, this is why I was really interested in it um, because it, it, it sounded so novel. And I mean, now there's, you know, so many games that do this or take elements from this. Uh, but at the time it was, it was one of a kind. Yeah. I mean, that, that makes sense. It is, they have a winning formula here. And I mean, I, I played Stardew Valley for the first time a couple of years ago. And so the sort of my familiarity with that really is sort of the frame that I can't help bringing to our mm -hmm. conversation about Harvest Moon. Um, but I completely can understand what, how it's hard to explain what is so pleasurable about this cycle of like, you get up in the morning, you water your plants, you milk your cows, you go to the market, you get your, like it, it's mm -hmm. on paper, it doesn't work, but yeah. And I mean, it has really nice sprite work and it looks like, you know, a classic Super Nintendo JRPG. So a lot of it was like, okay, this looks like a JRPG, but you really don't leave this one town. Yeah. But that's okay because there's lots to do. You don't really fight anything. But, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, totally. Um, so it makes sense to me that you picked this because, you know, Stardew is maybe one of my ultimate peaceful games. Um, although I don't, you know, it's not without its own sort of forms of internal pressure. Um, I think at times, especially when you're trying to get going in the first seasons, the day-night cycle, you have a time constraint, you have an energy limit of how much 
energy you can expend. So if you spend an entire day, you know, hoeing your fields and everything, you're going to end up quite depleted. This is one of the downsides of this choice of this type of game. Yeah, they become more peaceful as you progress. Yeah, they're the most stressful when you just turn it on, which is for the Snap Judgment episodes, kind of what you play. You played the most stressful parts. I actually don't know that I agree that the the opening is the most stressful and less pe- le- least peaceful. I think actually the parts of this game that are the parts of this game that are um, the most peaceful and satisfying are are in those first initial seasons. Um, I guess I just want to start by saying also that um, I knew Stardew Valley was considered like a contemporary successor to Harvest Moon, but. Boy, did I not realize the extent to which it is a pretty literal oh, update. Yeah, and I and I mean, there's stuff in Harvest Moon that you haven't seen yet sure. that is also in Stardew Valley. Oh, okay. Yeah, there's a lot of overlap. Like, to an incredibly granular level, right down to some of the visual language of how things are communicated, how, how your crops look, um, you know, your options for the farm, some of the characters in the town, the framing of what brings you to the farm, like a lot of the activities you like, mm-hmm. it's, you know, I, again, however close you are picturing it, if you haven't played these two games, it's like probably closer than that. Without being a literal one-to-one spatial um, or tile remake, I could not believe how close it was. Um, but the problem with that is that in some ways, I think it's kind of hard to go backwards. Um, and, you know, I can't encounter this game when it first came out and there was nothing like it. Like that's, I just, I can't un- like un- mm-hmm. have played Stardew Valley. And so there are a handful of things in this that I think were challenges I had that actually made it feel less peaceful than I wonder if it might have if I hadn't played Stardew. So like one of the things that I'm thinking of here is it has no real inventory system, right? Um, which I'm sure this is just a limitation of, of you know, hardware and stuff. But so you can only hold two items at a mm-hmm. time. There is no on-screen indication of which item you have equipped at any given moment. So the result of this is that, for example... Before you, if you go and buy seeds from the town, before you can sow them in your field, you have to use your hoe and like, hoe, like till the dirt. So I'm out there with my, with my hoe and my seeds getting ready to, to plant these. You just keep getting the giggles whenever I say those two words. I, listen, I understand why you wanted Boogerman now. <laughs> Dave Halverson over here. Um, and it happened to me multiple times because you have no way of knowing except through your memory which one your character is holding at that moment that instead of using the hoe, I chucked all my handful of seeds up in the air and they fell on the sallow ground where nothing would grow. And I lost that entire investment, which in the beginning when you're getting started, like buying one bundle of seeds is like all of your money. And so... That happened to me not once or twice, okay? The thing that I need you to understand is how many times that specific problem happened to me. An infuriating amount of times. Also, like, you know, when you're whenever you're trying to move anything, you have to carry things one by one. Like when you're harvesting your vegetables, you have to pick up one vegetable, walk to the bin where you drop them off, put it in the bin. Realism, man. Oh my God, it's not fun though. Like it, I mean, so this is again a thing where I really wonder if 
something is lost in my experience, because obviously in Stardew Valley, you have inventory. Like, I wonder if that process of like, oh, I have to remember to leave time in my day, just like I otherwise leave time for watering my plants and all my other stuff to pick these vegetables and bring them to this, this drop-off box. Like, but to me, because I am not used to having that be part of the rhythm of my, you know, video game farm life, I was like, what the hell? This is, oh my God, moving fences. If you want to rearrange the fences on your farm, you have to move them one post at a time. It is ludicrous. It takes so long. Okay, so maybe the familiarity here backfired in a sense because you know what's in the future and you know the quality of life improvements that happen. In Stardew Valley, I'm sure a lot of these happen in future Harvest Moon games as well. Oh, I'm sure, yeah. So a lot of parts of this game also felt kind of opaque to me. One of the things that I really missed was a clear marker of time. Um, in Stardew, you have a clock in the corner that you can watch. I think you to... get a clock in this, but yeah, I think you have to upgrade your house first. Oh, okay, yeah. Um, this, you just have to deal with changing lights. You know, often I knew what I wanted to do, but I didn't know how to do it. And, you know, some of it's not really explained. And so I just, I didn't get to the point where I had the feeling of, being effective in this game, which I think is linked to the peacefulness. I spent a lot of it walking around feeling like I wasn't using my time right or like I was wasting my time or like I just wasn't doing what I what I should be doing. And so it it actually <laughs> ended up feeling like not as peaceful as I think, you know, we would have we would have hmm. hoped. Like I think part of the fantasy of Stardew Valley is is running away to the country, sure. But like I think part of the real the real piece of it is the idea that your labor is rewarded in that game and that like through your work you can get yourself into a better position like you 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 are making small goals regularly and like doing things that'll upgrade your systems and make your life easier in the future and I, I actually think that's part of what makes stardew such a relaxing thing is this this layer of satisfaction that's mixed in with it and it has a beautiful aesthetic and, uh, you know, a lot of nature and a lot of space, but like the peacefulness isn't just aesthetic. Um, it's linked to the sense that things are going well and you're making progress towards goals um, that, you know, your work has meaning and there's time and space enough to spend with the people around you and time enough to explore the beautiful world around you, which is full of mystery and has all these wonders to show you. Um, and this is starting to feel depressing. So I'm going to uh, take a turn. But I, I genuinely We're still think... We're the pandemic in case anybody oh, is God. wondering. Oh, God. Jesus. <laughs> but my, my point is, um, I think I think that that system of reward and that system of feeling um, the, the progression and belonging and all that stuff, I think that's part of the peacefulness of Stardew. And I just didn't quite get it with Harvest Moon, although I might have gotten it if I played it at the time or if I played it for 12 more hours. <laughs> okay, right. So, so far we've got two resignations and one existential crisis. Yeah. Well, I mean, that's about, not that's about right. Not doing, I'm not doing so hot. Okay, <laughs> that's but, about right. Okay. But what's your, what's your one special thing here? <laughs> uh, making work feel worthwhile. What a, what a refreshing, lovely thing. I just like, I have to give this game credit for just inherently having such a good idea, putting such a good combination of elements together um, in a way that, you know, probably sang for the people who played it at the time and certainly sings in contemporary implementations. I like that you can hop over fences. 
you know what? Put hopping over fences in Stardew. You can like parkour. You're you're pretty quick actually. Yeah, it's uh, it's pretty good. The run is much better than in Stardew. I actually do think that's a a, a great thing in this game. Uh, the other thing, and this is this is like yours, something that has been picked up by other games, picked up by Stardew, but this is one of the games that did it first. But it was adding JRPG style mystery to this otherwise mundane simulation world. Yeah, like you can. They're just like little creatures. Like I think there's gnomes in this one. They're just, you know, there's like mystery to the world that you have to uncover that's very much part of like the JRPG experience yeah. that's really built in here. And that's, again, something Stardew picks up. Uh, but I'm really glad that they they didn't go for such a, a one-to-one kind of realistic simulation yeah. of, of farm life. Yeah, yeah. Um, and for verdicts, um, I am glad that I played it. And uh, yeah, but instead of playing more, you just went and put like another 100 hours into Stardew. I restarted Stardew and I'm at the 55 hour mark. Our last game. We were just on an upper. It's time for another downer. <laughs> this emotion you gave me abandoned. Yeah, I thought this would be evocative and something. You know, it's it's sort of less of a literal yeah um thing. It's it's more. I don't know. There's more to producing this feeling. I think. Yeah, and so here's how I interpreted it. Um, so I was thinking we've already dealt with isolation. Yeah. With. Super Metroid, primarily. I was thinking that feeling abandoned is isolation plus powerlessness. Sure. Yeah. Because you, you're you isolated in Metroid, but you never feel abandoned because you're so powerful mm-hmm. and you can progress and there's, there's clear goals. So I was looking for something that gave the player, that isolated the player, but also gave them kind of a lack of agency, uh, no clear goals, no clear progression. Because I think... You know, a game that won't hold your hand in in any sense, including telling you what you need to do in it. Like a game that sure, a game that just kind of drops you into it, and 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 that's it. Um, like you know how when we were talking about Star Fox Adventure on our last Snap Judgment, I said that that game was the the word that I used for that game was inhospitable. Yeah, what I was looking for here is like a different kind of inhospitable, like not necessarily a game that doesn't value your time, but more like a game that doesn't even know or care that you're in it. So the game that I chose, and this is a game that I hadn't played. This is a game I had only heard about, but it was for the PlayStation. Came out in Japan only in 1998. LSD Dream Emulator, which is how did this? How over to you <laughs> to describe it? Okay, okay. So this is, I guess, a walking simulator um, from before it was cool. Uh, where you're having, I guess, these dreams each night. Oh, I was like, I guess this is what's happening. Well, this, well, <laughs> listen. Um, so what I'm going to call these dreams are basically a series of spaces that you're navigating with absolutely zero <laughs> goal, zero communication about what the effect of doing anything is, zero communication about any part of like what this space is, Often whenever you touch anything, it moves you on to the like next space. 
I think the next space it chooses might be random, but I'm not sure. And like, I want to say I played like probably two or three hours of this game. Like I played like a not totally trivial amount of this. At some point, it just ends. I still have no idea what causes your dream to be over. And you get like a report, I think, of where that dream landed on this grid that like ranks your experience on an axis of static versus dynamic and upper versus downer. However, I don't feel like I have a sense of really how that's evaluated. Like my results were mostly, I had some deviations, but a lot of them were pretty close to the center. And I don't, I wouldn't have, I I was not able to guess where any of my dreams would be placed on this graph. Yeah. And for me, this was perfect because this is as close as the game gets us to communicating progression, but it's very hard to make any sense of it. So it really doesn't do that which is what I was looking for. Because you go into it sort of feeling like, okay, I want to see what... You feel like the the creative mind behind the game is trying to communicate something to you and that you're yeah. and so the looking guy, to understand what it is. And yeah. So the guy who created it uh, is sees himself more as a contemporary artist than a game developer. Yeah, no kidding. And wanted to make contemporary art for the PlayStation. And he says he came up with this idea about wandering in a dream world. Because it says uh, dreams are rational, they have no rules. You often don't remember when you wake up in the morning what the dream was about. And he wanted to make a game that could kind of communicate that. And he based the game on a dream journal that another employee at the development studio had kept over 10 years. Okay. And so the result is this really surreal, you know, walking simulator through a dream. Through And this is another part that I, I thought was really important. I wanted for abandonment... I wanted something PS1 era. Sure. Right? Because those PS1 era graphics are just so inherently yep. creepy. Yep. And if you don't know what it is you're looking at. Which you often don't. <laughs> I think I knocked it out of the park. This is, listen, did I feel abandoned? Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, I feel like I have no idea what the person who made this wanted me to do or experience or feel or think. Um, do you, do you want to describe some of the things you encountered? Sure. I literally, one of my notes on this was just, here are some of the things, <laughs> cause I can't, I can't really add much more gloss onto this. Uh, walking through a domestic type space with paper walls, a prison complex with massive statues in the courtyard, through a huge gate to a flat green world with black and white cutout trees, climbing a staircase with blood on the landings, and a sort of artificial man-made canyon that you're walking through. You know, I and then there's sort of a psychedelic world full of just polygons in messed up shapes with like random things moving around. So the one where I scored a huge downer grade, I intentionally went into this like psychedelic polygon world and found the most messed up looking polygon that I could find. It was like weird colors and like a weird shape. And I touched it. And it took me to a place I had not been before, which was uh, this scene where you are running through these black streets in a city with little pools of streetlight, like from a classic noir film. And then you end up chasing this woman in pink. But every time you catch her, she moves. And then eventually she disappears. And then, then you my dream ended. And you had a downer. And I had downer. And I was like, I guess. And then you just start right back. <laughs> yeah, right back new- in. Nothing, there's no change, there's no progress, like, it really just, uh, 
And there's really nothing you can do in terms of your movement. No. Like you're just moving, yeah. but there's no like action button. Right, right. Um, Something that I liked in here, you have a little bit of a delayed response from the controller, which sort of feels like being intoxicated or it sort of feels like that feeling in dream. Do you ever have those dreams where you like can't run fast enough? Like you're trying to run as fast as possible, but you just like can't go fast. This sounds stupid. This is a very common I, dream. I don't do a lot of running in my waking or dreaming life. <laughs> well, good for you. Um, it it does have this sort of uh, very loose control thing. I, I really think this succeeds in leaning into the dream logic. Like I, I genuinely, it, it has that thing from dreams where places turn out to be other places. You get this very free form associational mm -hmm. logic. That's, this is a thing. There's so many you know, games, but other art forms, you know, that aspire to do that or say they, you know, or like want to play with dream logic or or say they're structured according to dream logic, but they're way too co coherent. Oh, yeah. Yeah. They just mean like a normal scene where like one weird thing happens. Yeah. Like Inception takes place in dreams. I don't know what I've never had dreams that coherent. Sure. Sure. Even some of the like Twin Peaks dreams are like, no, this is still too... <laughs> It's like, yeah, this still too sensible. Yeah, like sometimes there's like a, a narrative imposed on my dreams, but it's not. But this is so associative and abstract. Yeah. And, you know, I mean, has built communities of players who try to make sense of it, but it's it's a world that I don't think has any kind of inherent sense. Right. Or it has that quality of like dream interpretation where you need to, you know, find the associations and that ends up saying way more about you than it does about the game. Yeah. 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 I, an interesting thing is I found myself desperate for goals to work towards, like just mm -hmm. something to guide, like, what do I, where do I, why would I do this anything? Because I, I know you love goals. I love goals. And so I want to take away the goals. You did. And so a lot of them would just be like, I can vaguely see a huge structure in the distance. Mm. It might be a watchtower or something. I'm going to go to that. Okay, so you'd impose your own goal. Yes, yeah, so overwhelmingly. Okay. Oh, and something that I figured out through this, I think some of the spaces are actually reliably connected mm. to each other in like a Euclid. Like I think I figured out the connection between the green space with the black and white trees and the fake canyon and mm. this like castle space because I tested going back through it and I was able to do it more than once. So there may be a grand like architecture of, of all of this. Or maybe just like in my actual dreams, sometimes spaces are recycled and you're back here again. <laughs> like, yeah, I, this, this definitely, it did the thing. It definitely did the thing. Um, it's, genuinely uncanny it's genuinely directionless and it is i think the the closest reproduction of being in an actual like bizarro dream that that i've ever seen in media and you felt abandoned i did yeah i felt like i felt like i was intentionally being given no tools no purpose no guide no power no but also no threat to really to structure my um yeah, yeah. It was just frameless, I would say. Um, so yeah, I think this is such a, this is a very good and cool choice for abandonment. I think you did a great job with this pick. Thank you. That's one out of four. Not bad. Yeah. <laughs> 1.5 out of four. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Uh, so what's your special thing from LSD Dream Emulator? Uh, giving up. Um, I think sometimes a game is just a dumb bunch of weird things and that's fine. I think I like the 
I actually like the stubborn repudiation and refusal of any creator-directed meaning-making in this game. It's not that I want that to be picked up, you know, broadly, but it often when, like you were saying about dreams, often, you know, when things try to be very, you know, non-directional about, it means whatever you want it to mean. It's still like, I know what the creators were thinking mm-hmm. exactly when they were making this. This genuinely felt so indifferent to me. Yeah, I mean, if the guy... If the designer's making it based on somebody else's dream journal, like even him being at that remove yeah. means that, yeah, there are probably so many layers here of, of abstraction that finding some kind of originary meaning is is a futile endeavor. Yeah, um, it, and I mean, it was it genuinely was weird and engaging enough that I spent a very contented two hours hypnotized by this thing, like... Happy as a clam, yep. going about my meaningless existence. The, the, the funny thing is that my the thing I wrote down as my special thing was basically the exact same thing. Um, just I found the pointlessness and the opaqueness of it to be refreshing. I find a lot of contemporary, you know, walking sims end up imposing an, a traditional narrative structure yeah. on it, uh, and I kind of like not having a clear purpose apart from just exploration and having to piece the meaning together myself. And again, I don't know how long of a playthrough this would sustain. I don't yeah. want every game to do this. Yeah, yeah. But just something that gets away from being, you know, a slave to narrative mm-hmm. is is kind of refreshing. Totally. My uh, my verdict, if you're interested. I am. Glad I played it. I probably yeah. don't need more time. I spent <laughs> enough time, but I absolutely did not regret the time I spent with this game. Great. I'm glad this whole endeavor wasn't just misery for you. Uh, But do you have any last thoughts? Anything else you need to get off your chest about any of these games? Yeah. Silver Surfer just absolutely sucks shit. (laughs) Like that, this, this guy makes no sense. I still can't figure out if he's supposed to be a bad guy or a good guy. I have no idea why I should play this game. Why is he on a surfboard? This is literally, of all the weird stupid ideas for superheroes i genuinely think this is one of the worst he he looks so crushed and ashamed every time you die and i'm just glad i got to make him feel that way so many times just absolute dog shit superhero is is that it no (laughs) lsd dream system alternate band name Oh, all right. Continue. We're done. Oh, boy. Now (laughs) I feel less bad about our upcoming arc (laughs) because our upcoming arc should be especially enjoyable for me, maybe less so for you, because we're doing a series of games, big games, games that are formative for a lot of people from major franchises that Michelle has never touched, but all of which she absolutely expects to hate. It's hard to remember why I agreed to this arc. Um, but, you know, I, I hear things about games. I absorb things from sources. Sometimes I see you playing things and get impressions. So I have prejudicial relationships with all of these titles. And we're kicking it off with a big boy, sad dad himself, Kratos, when Michelle plays God of War 2 for the PS2 from 2007. I do not care for this man. So you don't care for his 2018 iteration. Maybe the 2007 Kratos is a different man. Yeah, maybe. I guess I'm going to find out. Stay tuned. 
All right. That's going to do it for us. Um, Thank you so much for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, as always, please rate and review us on whatever podcast platform you listen to this on, including Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Um, You can find more details about our show and today's episode and and upcoming stuff at neverwasagamer.com, or you can follow us on Twitter at neverwasagamer. Yeah, thanks so much. And we'll see you next time after Michelle has played God of War 2, because playing at least one game whose title follows some formulation of blank of war (laughs) is an essential part of becoming a gamer.